Chapter 6, Gastroenterology, Topic 3, Stomach. Let's start off by discussing the important distinctions between acute and chronic gastritis. Acute gastritis is characterized by a sudden inflammation of the stomach lining. Various factors can precipitate this condition. Excessive alcohol consumption can irritate and erode the stomach lining, leading to acute gastritis. Similarly, overuse or prolonged use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can inflame the stomach lining. In some instances, burns can lead to a specific type of gastritis known as Curling's ulcer. Furthermore, physical injuries can sometimes trigger acute inflammation in the stomach. When we discuss the clinical manifestations of acute gastritis, patients often complain of epigastric pain, which is pain localized in the upper central region of the abdomen. There might be instances of hematemesis, which is vomiting of blood, and melena, which is black, tarry stools primarily due to digested blood. The diagnosis is primarily clinical, and an EGD can be conducted. On performing an EGD, one might observe inflammation and possible erosion of the gastric mucosa. In terms of management, proton pump inhibitors are employed to decrease stomach acid production. Additionally, it's essential to remove or reduce the exposure to the causative agent. Chronic gastritis is a prolonged inflammation of the stomach lining. Two common causes include helicobacter pylori infection, and pernicious anemia. The Helicobacter pylori bacterium is a significant contributor to chronic gastritis and even predisposes individuals to stomach ulcers and cancer. On the other hand, pernicious anemia is an autoimmune condition that affects the stomach lining, resulting in impaired vitamin B12 absorption due to the lack of intrinsic factor. For those presenting with symptoms of chronic gastritis, diagnostics include tests for Helicobacter pylori infection such as the urease breath test and stool antigen tests. Pernicious anemia can be confirmed through tests, such as checking for anti-intrinsic factor antibodies, antiparietal cell antibodies, and low vitamin B12 levels. If the mean corpuscular volume is greater than 100, it can suggest a vitamin B12 deficiency. Management strategies for chronic gastritis include a triple therapy for helicobacter pylori infection, which consists of two antibiotics, and a proton pump inhibitor. For those with pernicious anemia, vitamin B12 replacement therapy becomes necessary to tackle the deficiency. Next, we'll review peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcer disease can arise due to a variety of causes. A primary culprit is the H. pylori infection, which has been associated with the development of ulcers in many patients. Additionally, the consumption of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, steroids, and cholinomimetics can contribute to ulcer formation. A gastronoma, which is commonly associated with Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, can lead to excessive gastric acid production, creating an environment conducive for ulcer development. Burns can result in a specific kind of ulcer referred to as Cushing ulcer. Similarly, head trauma has been linked to the curling ulcer. Patients with peptic ulcer disease typically present with a distinctive gnawing epigastric pain. This pain may be experienced immediately after meals in cases of gastric ulcers or a few hours post-meals in those with duodenal ulcers. Other associated symptoms include nausea, vomiting, and belching. Some patients might present with hematemesis, which refers to the vomiting of blood, or have black stools indicative of digested blood. Early satiety, where patients feel full after consuming a small amount of food, can also be a presenting symptom. If peptic ulcer disease is suspected, several diagnostic tests can be employed. Testing for the H. pylori bacterium can be done through methods like the urea breath test or a stool assay. 
and EGD can be performed with ulcers most commonly being located on the lesser curvature of the stomach. It's essential to biopsy a gastric ulcer to rule out the possibility of malignancy. Furthermore, high-risk cases should undergo a repeat endoscopy to document any resolution or improvement in the ulcer's appearance. The management of peptic ulcer disease revolves around addressing the underlying cause. This includes avoiding causative agents such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. If H. pylori infection is identified, eradication is necessary. This can be achieved using triple therapy, which involves amoxicillin, clarithromycin, and a proton pump inhibitor. Another option is quadruple therapy, which combines metronidazole, tetracycline, bismuth, and a proton pump inhibitor. For penicillin allergic patients, substitute metronidazole for amoxicillin. In cases where the disease is refractive to treatment, a selective vagotomy may be performed. Peptic ulcer disease is not without its complications. These can range from perforation of the ulcer to gastric outlet obstruction. There's also the potential for the development of malignancy. Additionally, gastrointestinal bleeding can occur, presenting a significant risk to the patient. Next, we'll be delving into the topic of gastroparesis. Gastroparesis refers to a condition where there's a delay in gastric emptying. It's crucial to understand its causes, clinical manifestations, diagnostics, management, and potential complications. Let's begin by discussing the causes of gastroparesis. The most common cause is idiopathic, meaning we don't exactly know why it happens. Another significant cause is long-standing uncontrolled diabetes, which leads to vagus nerve neuropathy. This nerve is vital for stomach movement, and damage to it can lead to slowed emptying. Medications can also play a role in causing gastroparesis. Some of the culprits include opioids, tricyclic antidepressants, and muscarinic cholinergic antagonists. Shifting our focus to the clinical manifestations, patients with gastroparesis often complain of nausea and vomiting. They may also experience colicky abdominal pain, distension, and an early feeling of fullness after eating, termed early satiety. Anorexia, or a lack of appetite, is also common. An interesting clinical feature is hypoglycemia after meals. This occurs because the prolonged gastric emptying time results in less carbohydrate absorption into the blood. This means insulin is functioning in an environment with depleted carbohydrates. Additionally, constipation can be a feature of this condition. When it comes to diagnosing gastroparesis, a clinical diagnosis is often the starting point. However, for a more definitive diagnosis, gastric emptying scintigraphy is used. This nuclear medicine study examines the percentage of gastric contents remaining four hours after a meal. If 10 to 15% of the contents remain, it's considered mild gastroparesis. A moderate case sees between 15 to 35% of the contents remaining, and anything over 35% is classified as severe. It's also essential to rule out any mechanical obstruction that might mimic the symptoms of gastroparesis. Now let's talk about management. In acute cases, intravenous fluid resuscitation is vital. For those suffering from nausea and vomiting, intravenous antiemetics, such as ondansetron and granisetron, can be beneficial. Intravenous erythromycin, which acts as a motilin receptor agonist, can also be used. However, its long-term use has limited viability due to tachyphylaxis. For chronic management, dietary modifications can make a big difference. Patients are advised to eat small, frequent, low-fat meals. Medications like metoclopramide, which is a D2 receptor antagonist, and domperidone can be used 
And of course, controlling glucose levels is paramount, especially in diabetic patients. Lastly, let's touch upon the complications arising from chronic vomiting, a feature of gastroparesis. Patients can develop a Mallory-Weiss-Tear or even Boerhaave syndrome, metabolic derangements, such as hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis, can also occur. The next four stomach disorders are associated with increased risk of developing malignancy. First, pernicious anemia. Pernicious anemia is an autoimmune condition that affects vitamin B12 absorption, leading to a specific type of anemia called megaloblastic anemia. The name pernicious means harmful or deadly, which is a nod to the disease's once severe nature before the advent of vitamin B12 therapy. Let's start by looking at the risk factors. A family history of pernicious anemia or a personal history of other autoimmune diseases can predispose an individual to developing this condition. As an aside, strict vegans and post-gastric bypass surgery can also result in B12 deficiency. In terms of pathophysiology, the process begins with chronic gastritis, which leads to the atrophy of parietal cells in the stomach. These cells are responsible for producing intrinsic factor, a protein essential for vitamin B12 absorption. Furthermore, in patients with pernicious anemia, antibodies are produced against this intrinsic factor, effectively preventing vitamin B12 absorption. Clinically, patients often present with symptoms related to the anemia itself and vitamin B12 deficiency. They might complain of fatigue, which is secondary to the megaloblastic anemia. Additionally, weight loss, discomfort in the epigastric region, and glossitis, an inflamed tongue, can be observed. Neuropsychiatric symptoms are especially noteworthy. Due to the B12 deficiency, patients can experience memory deficits, confusion, and even altered mental status. For diagnosis, several laboratory tests can be beneficial. Serology tests can detect the presence of anti-intrinsic factor antibodies and antiparietal cell antibodies. Unsurprisingly, vitamin B12 levels in the blood are typically decreased. If the B12 levels are equivocal, an elevated methylmalonic acid level can help clinch the diagnosis. A peripheral blood smear might show hypersegmented neutrophils, which are a hallmark of megaloblastic anemia. The management of pernicious anemia primarily revolves around replacing the deficient vitamin B12. This can be achieved using oral supplements or injections, depending on the severity and the patient's specific needs. Finally, it's essential to be aware of the complications associated with pernicious anemia. Longstanding disease can predispose patients to gastric cancer and gastric carcinoid tumors. The second malignancy-associated disorder is menetrier disease. Menetrier disease is characterized by the presence of large, tortuous folds in the stomach lining, primarily resulting from extreme fovular hyperplasia with accompanying glandular atrophy. When it comes to clinical manifestations, Patients with menetrier disease commonly present with epigastric pain. The disease can affect appetite, leading to anorexia. Consequently, weight loss is another hallmark symptom. Additionally, patients may report nausea and episodes of vomiting. For the diagnosis, esophagogastroduodenoscopy is instrumental. During this procedure, the characteristic large gastric mucosal folds become evident, pointing towards a diagnosis of menetrier disease. In terms of laboratory findings that support the diagnosis, hypoalbuminemia, which indicates protein loss, and acloridria, or the absence of hydrochloric acid in the gastric secretions, are frequently observed. Moving on to management, the approach to menetrier disease is multifaceted. Initial management is typically supportive, 
emphasizing a high-protein diet to counteract the protein loss. It's essential to investigate and treat any underlying helicobacter pylori or cytomegalovirus infection, as these pathogens can sometimes be associated with the disease. Pharmacological interventions can also play a role, though their efficacy may vary among patients. Proton pump inhibitors can help reduce acid secretion. Somatostatin analogs, such as octreotide, may also be beneficial. Another therapeutic option is cetuximab, an epidermal growth factor, receptor monoclonal antibody, which can be effective in some cases. Lastly, it's crucial to be aware of potential complications of menetrea disease. The most significant concern is the increased risk of gastric cancer in these patients. Regular monitoring and follow-ups are vital to catch any malignant changes early. The third stomach disorder associated with increased risk of malignancy is Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. This rare and complex condition is characterized by the presence of a gastrin-secreting tumor. Diving into the pathophysiology, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is caused by a gastrin-producing tumor. This tumor leads to the excessive stimulation of parietal cells in the stomach lining, resulting in an overproduction of hydrochloric acid. Clinically, patients with this syndrome present with a constellation of symptoms. Epigastric or abdominal pain is often at the forefront. The excess gastrin interferes with the function of pancreatic enzymes, preventing the proper absorption of fats and leading to chronic fatty diarrhea. Nausea, vomiting, and belching are also common. A significant clue to this condition is refractory peptic ulcer disease, which remains unresponsive even to high doses of proton pump inhibitors. Furthermore, patients might present with symptoms of an upper gastrointestinal bleed, such as melina and anemia. From a diagnostic standpoint, several tests are pivotal. Elevated gastrin levels, particularly levels greater than 1,000, can be indicative. However, it's crucial to ensure that patients are not on PPIs or H2 blockers before measuring gastrin levels, as these medications can falsely elevate gastrin. The secretin stimulation test is another valuable diagnostic tool. Under normal circumstances, secretin should inhibit gastrin. However, in the presence of a gastrinoma, gastrin levels fail to decrease. If the secretin test is negative but the suspicion remains high, the calcium infusion study can be employed. Here, calcium infusion should lead to a rise in gastrin levels in patients with gastrinoma. Esophagogastroduodenoscopy often reveals multiple, larger, and more aggressive ulcers extending into the duodenum and jejunum. To localize the gastrinoma, somatostatin receptor scintigraphy, also known as a nuclear octreotide scan, can be utilized. CT scans further assist in localization. In terms of management, the approach hinges on the extent of the disease. For localized disease, surgical resection is the treatment of choice. These tumors are most commonly located within the so-called gastrinoma triangle, defined by the confluence of the cystic and common bile duct, the second and third parts of the duodenum, and the neck and body of the pancreas. Medical management includes the use of octreotide, a somatostatin analog, and PPIs. Advanced cases might warrant chemotherapy. Potential complications include gastric cancer, perforation, and malignancies associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, such as pituitary and parathyroid tumors. Lastly, we'll conclude by discussing gastric adenocarcinoma. Gastric adenocarcinoma is a type of stomach cancer that originates from the glandular cells lining the stomach. Its etiology is multifactorial, with several risk factors contributing to its development. 
Consumption of alcohol and tobacco are known culprits. Dietary habits, specifically the intake of preserved foods, also play a role. Chronic atrophic gastritis with intestinal metaplasia, as seen in conditions like pernicious anemia and helicobacter pylori infection, is a significant predisposing factor. Adenomatous gastric polyps, menetrea disease, and having blood type A further increase the risk. Clinically, patients with gastric adenocarcinoma can present with a range of symptoms. Nausea and non-bilious vomiting are common. An interesting clinical sign is the succussion splash, where a sloshing sound is heard when the patient's abdomen is rocked back and forth with a stethoscope placed on it. This indicates the presence of retained gastric contents due to outlet obstruction. Other symptoms include weight loss, early satiety, gastrointestinal bleeding, and heartburn. For diagnosis, EGD with biopsy is the cornerstone. Characteristic findings include ulcerating lesions that are heaped up. In some cases, there might be evidence of lenitis plastica, where the tumor involves all layers of the stomach, leading to decreased elasticity. This particular finding is associated with a poor prognosis. Additionally, a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis is vital for staging the disease. Gastric adenocarcinoma is notorious for its metastatic potential. Several metastatic associations are classically described. Virchow nodes refer to the involvement of the left supraclavicular lymph node. Sister Mary Joseph nodules are palpable nodules at the umbilicus due to periumbilical lymph node involvement. Krukenberg tumors are metastatic deposits in the ovaries. A Bloomer shelf tumor is palpable on rectal examination due to metastasis to the rectum. Lastly, Irish nodes refer to the involvement of the left axillary lymph node. Management largely depends on the stage of presentation. Unfortunately, many cases present in advanced stages due to the vague and nonspecific symptoms associated with early disease. For localized disease, surgical resection, particularly gastrectomy, is the mainstay. In cases with metastatic disease, chemoradiation and palliative care are essential components of management.